Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's great to be here at Living Hope Baptist Church. Great to be here in Bowling Green and with you this morning. I uh, thank God for this church, for your pastor and his staff, for the, uh, for the ministry of this church in this community and beyond. You are an encouragement to many who are far from you. And uh, even this morning as we were praying and I was hearing about the mission teams you were sending out far flung around the world, I just want to tell you it's encouraging to be amongst the gospel-minded people who understand the burden of taking that gospel, the great joy of taking that gospel, the commission of taking that gospel to the ends of the earth that the nations would be glad. And I am glad with you to be here to get to do the one thing that Christians get to do no one else gets to do. And that is to gather together as the, as the gathered body of Christ in order to worship the one true and living God, to declare the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to open the Scripture together. And I'm going to ask you to do that this morning, turning to the sixth chapter of John. John, the fourth gospel, the sixth chapter. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, we're living in some of those interesting days we could imagine. And it seems as if the pace of change, the velocity of the change around us is, is, is now so fast that we can hardly anticipate what tomorrow is going to look like. The world in so many fundamental ways is, is just reshaping itself all around us. And, and not just on superficial issues. I'm not just talking about technological change or sociological change, political or economic change. We're talking about change about something so basic as marriage. So many... So many things are now confronting us that make very clear that the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a unique position in the year 2015, in this unique place, in this culture, and, and for this congregation, even in Bowling Green, Kentucky, the challenge of being faithfully Christian now feels different than it did, oh, a month ago. Not to mention a decade ago. Or a generation ago. The requirement of Christian faithfulness hasn't changed. That, that, that's ongoing. The New Testament is very clear about what a Christian looks like and, and how a Christian is to live under the Lordship of Christ. And, and we are defined as disciples, those who are being taught by Christ. We are those who are, are followers of Christ. We, we are not only those who have come to know the truth about Christ, that He is the very Son of God who died in our place as our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. We, we come not only to know the, the facts about His death, burial, and resurrection, the very foundation of the Gospel, we come to know what it means to be justified by faith alone. We come to understand that salvation is by grace alone. And we come to understand what it means to be united with Christ and and, and what it means to be left in this world for a purpose. Christ has His people. Christ has His church in this world for a purpose. And that hasn't changed from the time He gave that assignment to the apostles. But it does feel a bit different. And even though the responsibility of the church, the responsibility of Christian faithfulness hasn't changed, the context of the challenges we face, it certainly has changed and will change. It's very important, I think, therefore, that we go back and understand that what many of us are feeling right now, which in some ways is new to us, is not new to the church. One of the most reassuring and humbling realizations we have reading the New Testament is that 
Our times are not quite so unique as we like to think. The predicament of the church really hasn't changed, even as the cultural context around us has changed. In John chapter 6, we're going to come across questions that Jesus asked of those who claim to be his followers. And in John chapter 6, we're going to see something fairly horrifying. That is, that there are those who had claimed to be the followers of Jesus who stopped following him on this very day. They followed him no more. Now, this is one particular day in the life and ministry of Jesus. We begin reading in John chapter 6, and I invite you to begin reading with me as you look at the text at verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 35 of John chapter 6 is one of those statements we know from the Gospel of John, one of the I am statements. Jesus disclosed himself, and in particular, he revealed his identity as the very Son of God by using a statement that you remember from the book of Exodus. When Moses confronted that bush that burned but was not consumed, and when the Lord called Moses in that account, you remember that Moses said to God, Who shall I say has sent me? I I need a name. I know you are the one true and living God, but I need a name. Who shall I say has sent me? And the Lord God spoke from that bush that burned, it was not consumed, and He said, I am that I am. He identified Himself as the one that always has been and the one that always will be and the one that is, I am. And Jesus in the Gospel of John, as He is revealing Himself to the crowds and to His own disciples, He uses seven different times in the Gospel of John the phrase, I am. And some of those, of course, are so familiar to you. I am the Good Shepherd. My sheep know My voice and follow Me. I am the door. He is the opening unto the way of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. These are things that Jesus said in order to reveal Himself. And here in John chapter 6, He says, I am the bread of life. Now what's really interesting about this in the context is that if you go back to the earlier part of this chapter, you find out what happened on the day before. The day before, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He performed the miracle we know as the feeding of the 5,000. And you know from your knowledge of Scripture that what happened on that day is that Jesus took one little boy's meal of five loaves and fishes and loaves. He took that little meal and He broke it in such a way and multiplied it in such a way that 5,000 men were fed along with unnumbered women and children. Just, just from little loaves and little fishes, an explosion, a multiplication of food such that there were 12 basketfuls left over. That was the day before. Now, let me just ask you a, a question. If you had been there on that day in which Jesus, in your sight, performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, wouldn't you 
have understood that he could only have been the Son of God? John in his Gospel refers to the miracles as signs. That's his word. The, the other three Gospels refer to the miracles as something like using the word miracle. John calls them signs because they are pointing to the identity of the only one who could do these things. The only one who could raise someone from the dead is none other than God Himself. The only one who can restore sight to the blind is none other than God Himself. The only one who can restore a withered hand is none other than God Himself. The only one who can say, take up your bed and walk is none other than the Son of God. The only one who can multiply one little boy's meal to feed 5,000 men and unnumbered women and children is clearly, as the sign would point, clearly the very Son of God. But that was yesterday. Okay, here's a humbling realization for us. Evidently, you can see something even like that and miss the point. That's what takes place here on the next day. The next day, there are those, John tells us, who have come to see Jesus. They have gone to considerable lengths to find Him on the day after the feeding of the 5,000. And there's a conversation that takes place that we do not have time to review earlier in John chapter 6, but it's in response to them that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now that's one of the sweetest of all the statements Jesus ever made. I am the bread of life. What what does He mean? He means we are to feed on Him. It's a picture of, of what it means to believe in Christ. We, we believe on Him. Our faith is pictured as something as simple as eating bread. We receive Christ as we receive bread. We're hungry. We know the pangs of hunger. We are regularly reminded of just how hungry we can be. And what satisfies us when we are hungry is bread. And that's a picture of our predicament and a picture of our salvation. We are desperately in need of a Savior. We are desperately in need of the forgiveness of sins. We are desperately in need of all that God the Father has given to us in the Son. And when we come to Him by faith, it is as if we are feeding on Him. It's a picture we can understand. But it's a picture that those who heard Jesus say these words did not like. That's the surprising thing in the text. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. But look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, now I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, 
Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, the Father sent me in order that I could give my flesh. He's speaking of the cross. In order that He could pay the penalty for our sin. In order that as the bread of life, as the Father raised Him from the dead, as the living bread, we feed on Him, and in Him we find our salvation. And those who heard Jesus say these words didn't like it. When they heard Jesus speak of being the bread of life, they didn't want it. They grumbled. The text continues. The Jews then disputed among themselves, this is verse 52, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Well, evidently, there's a big dispute here. We better figure out what it is. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The one who will not eat my flesh, the one who will not drink my blood, has no life whatsoever. And, and what's this business about your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead? But I'm the living bread. He who eats this bread will live forever. Well, it goes back to the fact that those who were confronting Jesus didn't want to be told they needed a Savior. They didn't want to be told they needed to be saved. They were very much offended by the fact that they needed a Savior who would die in their place. Clearly, Jesus is speaking of His death, burial, and resurrection. He's speaking in particular of his crucifixion because when you read this text, it only really makes sense to us because we know about the Last Supper and we know about Jesus breaking the bread and pouring the wine. And we know about Jesus speaking of, of the bread as his body broken for us. And he, he spoke of the, uh, of the cup as his blood shed for us. And we come to understand how necessary that was for our salvation. He bore in his body the just penalty for our sin. 
you know, if you just read this and you don't know anything about Jesus and you don't know anything about the gospel and you, you perhaps are just hearing this for the first time, if this is the first text of Scripture you hear and what you hear is about eating flesh and drinking blood, you're going to have an entirely different and wrong understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. This is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of Christ's atonement accomplished for us. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And He's pointing to the Old Covenant. He's pointing to what happened with Israel wandering in the wilderness and every single day God gave them manna. And you remember the Old Testament. You remember as Israel was wandering, they received the manna, which was a form of bread that they received just enough for one day. Every single day they had to have a new deposit of manna. And every day they were reminded of their constant, everyday dependence upon the provision that God and God alone would make for them. But Jesus says, look, under the Old Covenant, they ate the bread and they lived for a day. Oh, and by the way, right now, they're dead. But you eat this bread and you live forever. They didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. And we come to find that out not only because twice we're told that they grumbled amongst themselves, but we come to know something that's even more horrifying to us when we come to verse 60. Before verse 60, what we know is that there were those who had come to Jesus and they heard Him speak this way and they didn't like it one bit. But what's more troubling is what follows in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Oh my goodness. We just entered a whole new territory here. Because it's one thing for those who were the opponents of Jesus not to like what he said. It's one thing for those who rejected him, never claimed to be his disciples, didn't consider themselves his followers. It's one thing for them to be offended by what Jesus said and to grumble amongst themselves. But now, in verse 60, we are told that these are amongst the disciples of Jesus. And some of the disciples said, boy, that's tough. Who can listen to it? We're all new territory here. We're now told that some of those who had claimed to be the disciples of Jesus, they don't like what they're hearing any more than the enemies of Jesus. It's an interesting question they ask. Who can listen to this? Hard to take. All this stuff about eating bread and, and, and Jesus being the bread of life. And, but but that, that's, it's not like Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I can offer a way of salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am the Savior, the only Savior. This is pointing to the very thing that happens in John chapter 14, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's tough. It's really tough. And we're told here, some of His disciples... They began to grumble amongst themselves. They were troubled by this. It's a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But look at what happens in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in Himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Oh my goodness. Just imagine 
you're listening to Jesus teach. And you're one of the disciples of Jesus, not one of the twelve. That becomes very clear. When, the, when we're talking in verse 60 about the disciples, we're talking about a much larger group that attached themselves to Jesus. They followed him around. All four of the Gospels tell us this. Matthew helps us understand that at one point he sent out 70 disciples on a, on a missionary journey. There were many disciples who followed him. And we're, you know, we talk about the twelve. The twelve are very different. And they're going to be... They're going to show up in just a moment. But we're talking about a much larger group of disciples, and some of them don't like what they're hearing any more than the crowd. But can you imagine standing there when Jesus turned to some of his own disciples and said, you got a problem with this? Oh my goodness. But that's exactly what's taking place here. Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Jesus is telling His disciples, look, if you've got a problem with this, then buckle your seatbelts. Because there's a lot more coming. Jesus hasn't yet said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. But the seed of that is already here. And it's already causing some who claim to be the disciples of Jesus to grumble. Who can listen to this? Let's read through the text. Jesus says, as you look in his response in verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives light. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you also want to go away? We're told that when Jesus confronted those amongst his disciples who grumbled about what he said, some of them walked with them, with him no longer. They weren't his disciples anymore. Later in his letters, John will address this when he speaks to those who departed the faith and he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. There were those who were hanging on because it was popular to be around Jesus. They were hanging around because it was popular to be amongst Jesus and his disciples. They, they wanted to be seen with Jesus when they gained cultural capital by being with Jesus, when they, when they were more popular being seen with Jesus. They, at one point in his ministry, everybody wanted a selfie with Jesus. But not today. Not today. Not when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you don't receive this bread, you have no life in you. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have everlasting life. Now, all that to say where I began, the church has always been in this predicament. What we find in John chapter 6 reminds us that the headlines of 2015 aren't telling us something 
that's new. Just something that's new for us. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has always held to a gospel that when rightly understood will offend many people, even as it is the very message of salvation. That's not new. Interesting when you look at the picture here. There's this large group of those who claim to be the disciples of Jesus. And until John chapter 6, they are happy to be seen in the crowd following Jesus. They, they're the hangers-on. They are those who aren't committed, as we find out in the end, but they look committed until the testing time comes. So let's be really honest. And this is where evangelical Christians need to have an extremely honest face-to-face conversation. We have fooled ourselves. And we can understand how easy it was to fool ourselves. We fooled ourselves into thinking there were more of us than there are. We looked at what we now know and, and for a long time have discussed as cultural Christianity. And, 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 and then we realized that cultural Christianity is disappearing with lightning speed right before our eyes. It's almost like this morning driving in from the countryside. You know, the, the, the mist, the fog, the, 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 the morning mist begins to dissolve as soon as the sun comes out. That's how fast cultural Christianity is disappearing in this generation. Just like this crowd around Jesus had been building for a very long time, a crowd's been building around the church. You know, we we talked about America as a country made up predominantly of Christians. Let me just make a statement that should be obvious to us. If the majority of those who live in America were faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we could not be talking about the headlines we're talking about. The impossible. Now, I said that carefully. I didn't say that a majority of Americans don't think they're Christians. I said it's clear that a majority of Americans are not faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have allowed ourselves to be fooled into thinking there are more of us than there are. And with that have come many different temptations. We've been tempted to think that we're really in charge of the culture when clearly... Let's look each other in the eye. Evidently, we're not. Not only that, we, we have, we've fooled ourselves into thinking that people like or at least respect what we believe. And the truth is, an incredibly large percentage of our neighbors if they knew what we really believed, they would be offended. Talking to a young man about a year ago, college freshman last year, got admitted to a very prestigious university and uh, moved in the dorm, raised in a Christian home, very faithful Christian young man, 18-year-old, arrives on the college campus and... uh, and he thought he was ready. And academically, no question, he was. He's ready, no doubt. But in terms of ready for what he was going to face in the classroom, he wasn't. And, and even more pressing, ready to be confronted with what he was faced with in the dorm. 
He wasn't. He knew the Gospel, had a firm grasp of the Gospel. He, he thought he was ready for this. But when he moved in the dorm, first of all, well, I don't have time to go into detail, but he had to sit through about a four-hour presentation on the sex code of the modern secular university. Let's just say it's a disaster. Then he's moving in, and, and across the hall was another very bright, brilliant young man, 18 years old, from India. And uh, they made a connection as, as they were getting to know each other in the dorm. And as they made this connection, even in the moving in day, they kind of sparked a friendship. And uh, they sparked a friendship that led to the kind of discussions that you have when you're around someone a great deal of the time. And so they began talking about the fact that this one young man was a Hindu, and, and of course the young man that I'm talking about was a Christian, and they started talking about what they believed. And then at one point, the young man from India, the Hindu young man says, you are telling me that you honestly believe that unless I come to what you call faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And this young man knew what to say. He said, yes. Yes, that's what I believe. And then the Hindu young man said, so you're telling me that all of my ancestors, faithful Hindus throughout the generations, are now in hell. And this young man said, I said the right thing. But the friendship ended right there. I said it in the sweetest, kindest way I know. But the conversation ended right there. You have a conversation these days about what the Bible actually says about marriage. You can find yourself in the workplace. You can find yourself on the university campus, you can find yourself on the back patio, you can find yourself at the dinner table talking with people who say, do you really, really believe that? And the answer is, if we're faithful to Christ, yes, we really, really do believe. Not as the first tenet of the Christian faith, but as a necessary teaching of Scripture that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. And that as the marriage, the union of a man and a woman, faithful to each other for a lifetime, it's one of the most beautiful gifts that God has given us human creatures. Period. When you look at this text, we find that Jesus is confronted, not just with a crowd that opposes Him, but Jesus is confronted with some of those who claim to be His own disciples who are offended by what He says. And they, according to John, turned to one another and said, this is a hard saying. Who can stand it? So let's just admit something to each other. We actually know what that feels like. We, we do need to be honest. We need to say that there are times when we read Scripture and we go, yikes! Jesus said that. Okay, let's be honest. We wouldn't perhaps say it that way. You see, some of these disciples are getting ready to say, you know, what we need real quick is a marketing expert. Quickly. 
We need a consultant pronto. Jesus needs some messaging assistance here. There has to be another way to say this. No, Jesus, you don't need to say that. You need to say, hey, are you watching all the candidates run for president? And that, do you notice that they, they've got consultants of this, consultants of that. They've got messaging people all, all around them. And so sometimes, even in the course of the day, it's really interesting. You've got a candidate, if you're watching what's going on, you've got a candidate who will say something at 10.10 in the morning and he's corrected it by 11.30 and is already trying to change the message by 12.45 and he's trying to do everything he can to make everyone forget everything he said at 10 o'clock in the morning. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, I said what I said. Some of his disciples were saying, you know, well, let me tell you one of the formulas that, that people sometimes use in this kind of situation. One of the temptations that came to these disciples was to say, okay, okay, that's what he said, but let me tell you what he meant. Now, that's also something you see. Just look at the political campaign right now. You've got all kinds of, 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 of people who are following the candidates around, and they're saying, yeah, I know that's what he said or she said, but let me just tell you what, what she meant. Clean it up on the backside. And all these candidates have got people who basically are carrying around little verbal brooms and dustpans, just trying to clean up behind the candidates. That's, that's, that's what he said, but let me tell you what he meant. That's what he said, but let me tell you what he meant. The first time you hear a preacher read the text and say, in effect, yes, that's what it says, but let me tell you what it means, fire him. But we understand the temptation. The temptation would be to say, yes, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But what he really meant to say was, no, that's what he said. And that's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples, to those who claim to be his disciples. When he turns to them, he says, does this offend you? Why do you think I came? Who do you think I am? Where do you think I'm headed? And then the text makes very clear that after Jesus confronted his disciples with their attempt to try to re-message him, many of them walked with him no more. They were gone. Jesus described this also in the parable of the sower and the soils when he spoke about the seed that falls in the shallow ground and it seems to show immediate signs of life, but when the, the sun comes out because there is no depth of soil, it dies. Jesus told us this was going to happen. And we're watching it happen right now. We're actually watching both of these things take place. We're seeing some who simply walk with us no more. So let me be very blunt. There were people who just a few years ago would have joined your church who will not join your church now. And you haven't changed. There were and are neighbors, friends, business associates who once thought you being a member of this church was a non-controversial thing. But it won't stay that way if you stay true to the Gospel. And then we also see around us 
churches and entire denominations that are trying to say, yes, that's what it says, but let me tell you what it means. And so right here in Bowling Green, Kentucky, you've got on the front page of your paper a week ago Sunday, be two weeks ago today, on the front page of your newspaper was an article in which you had pastors on both sides of the issue talking about where their churches stand on something as basic to biblical authority as the definition of marriage. You can find churches that have right outside on their signs, signs advertising, messages advertising. Yeah, that's what it says, but let me tell you what it means. If all we had was the text to this point, we wouldn't yet reach the point. But when we come to verse 66, we read, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, there's the twelve, they're going to show up here. That's the inner core. These are the ones Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. These are the ones whom Jesus personally turned and said, come follow me. These are the twelve who are with him because he has a purpose for every single one of them. Even the one who would betray him. And he turns to the twelve and he asks them a question. Do you want to go away as well? Now when I preach on this text, I often have people who have been Christians for a very long time come up to me and say, I never really read that straightforwardly before. Jesus here is turning to the twelve after some of his other disciples walked away and follow him no more, and he says, you going too? Okay, aren't you kind of glad you weren't standing there? Can you imagine what it would have been like to stand there when Jesus turns to you and says, okay, are you leaving too? And this was not a rhetorical question. Jesus expects an answer. Somebody's going to have to answer, and you know who that's going to be. Peter. The same Peter who, when Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 16, but who do you say that I am? The same Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to whom Christ responded, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are right, Peter. Jesus says here in John chapter 6, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's just that simple. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who eats this bread will never die. And in response, there are those who walk with Him no more. In response, there are those who say, that's offensive. And reject it outright. But there are some who hear and believe. They know they need a Savior. And here He is. They know they need the forgiveness of sins. And here it's promised. 
as naturally as a hungry person would reach out for bread, they have reached out to Christ. Christ says, are you also going to go away? Peter says, Lord, where will we go? It's as if he's saying what Christ has not yet said. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by you. Peter goes on to say, oh, and we've come to know. We've come to know and to understand that you are the Holy One of God. So, why this text on this day? First of all, because it's the Word of God. And the reality is that any preacher on any day, given any text, had better be ready and able to preach. But why this text this day? Because to be honest, I think this is exactly where we are living I think here in July of 2015, we stand in a place different than we knew before when we feel the weight of what Jesus asked His disciples, the twelve, do you also want to go away? Why this text this day? Because in this text is the Gospel. Such that if there is anyone here who has never yet come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, here is the Gospel for you. Everything needful for your salvation, God has provided for us in Christ. And all you must do to be saved is believe on Him. Repent of your sins and follow Him. As naturally as when you are hungry, you reach for bread. The Gospel says, here is Christ. Believe and be saved. But why this text this day? So that together... As Christ's church, we will hear the question, do you also want to go away? And so that we'll respond together, as did Peter, on behalf of all true disciples throughout the history of the church, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And beyond that, we've come to know you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. And Father, we are so thankful that You have given us not only this text and not only these words, but the very Word of life and the bread of life. And Father, we pray this morning that Your Holy Spirit will apply this Word to our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.